sure. Maybe a tad younger. Maybe a tad older. I'm not sure. But his wife is named Barbara. And uh, last or earlier this year, I think it was, doesn't give the date. I'm going to read you part of this story that he tells about how she almost died in a surgery that was to be absolutely commonplace, simple surgery. And uh, the way she didn't die is so remarkable that he tells the story and, uh, and chalks it up to the providence of God. So let me, I'll skip around, and, but this will take a few minutes to read, but I think you'll find it very remarkable and encouraging to your faith. It was supposed to be routine surgery, but something went wrong, and the life of my beloved wife, Barbara, hung by the, in the balance by the thinnest thread. Early in the morning, I had checked Barbara into the hospital and settled back to wait. As I was reading the morning paper, I recognized a medical technician named Suzanne and cheerfully greeted her. Suzanne had become friends with my wife's niece, when they both had worked in the hospital some years before. Barbara's niece had long since moved away, and it was quite unexpected to run into Suzanne, especially since she normally didn't come to the waiting room area where I was sitting that morning. Now, all that sounds quite irrelevant, but it will prove to be very providential. My oldest daughter, Holly, joined me at 10 a.m. The surgeon met with us cheerfully and said, Perfect. It couldn't have gone better. Barbara would be in the recovery room for an hour and a half, and then we could see her. So we'd see Barbara uh, a little later. So I returned. I went home and then uh, came back a little later to find my daughter very worried. They had taken Barbara back into surgery. It was only supposed to take 15 minutes. Those 15 minutes stretched into five hours. We soon realized something was seriously wrong. They couldn't stop the bleeding, and no one on the team of doctors could figure out why. The day stretched into evening without any answer, and thus began a very long, dark night. Barbara sensed her life was slipping away. After her doctor's visit at 11 p.m., matters only worsened. Nurses repeatedly changed the dressing, but Barbara continued to hemorrhage and kept growing weaker and weaker. At 1.30 a.m., I called our associate pastor to start a prayer vigil and got some more, uh, and got more than I'd asked for as the whole staff of the church and several friends arrived within an hour to pray. By the middle of the next day, however, it looked as if I was going to lose my beloved wife. By then, she had lost two-thirds of her body's blood. Her heart was racing, and she kept bleeding. As family members gathered around the bed, Larry Fullerton, my associate, commented, You need to encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. Her blood isn't clotting. Remember Suzanne? She had seen me the previous morning, now happened to stop by just at that moment to say hi and give Barbara some magazines. Shocked to walk in on a family in crisis, she felt like she really shouldn't be there, but stayed long enough to hear Larry's comment about her blood is not clotting. In that instant, Suzanne remembered doing a blood test years ago on Barbara's niece. 
When she had showed the results to a blood specialist, the niece was warned that if she were ever in a car accident or suffered a similar trauma, she could bleed to death. Suzanne ran to the lab, switched on her computer, called up the niece's records, compared them with Barbara's workup. The pathology was identical. Suzanne then ran to the critical care unit and tried to explain all this to the nurse. She then dashed back to her supervisor, who told her to go immediately to the blood bank. As Suzanne began to explain, the blood bank doctor exclaimed, Barbara Hughes, tell Dr. So-and-so. Barging into the doctor's meeting with five pathologists, Suzanne told her story. Within an hour, Barbara was given the medication for her rare blood disorder, and her life was saved. This is not a story about Barbara or Suzanne. It's a story about God. What happened to my wife and Suzanne is a miracle of divine providence. There is no other way to explain it. It really started years ago when two bored lab technicians ran tests on each other. And one, Suzanne, learned that the other, who happened to be my wife's niece, had a rare clotting disorder. Then, on the day of Barbara's surgery, I ran into this lab technician, who normally doesn't come to the area where I was, and mentioned Barbara's surgery. The next day, Suzanne stopped by to see Barbara at exactly the right moment to overhear Larry's comment about her blood is not clotting. Amazingly, Suzanne remembered the tests from years ago. Suzanne saved my wife's life. But was it really Suzanne who saved Barbara? No, God did. It was God in his sovereign care who orchestrated the miraculous details of these events. But I would also say that if God had taken Barbara home to be with himself, he would have been just as involved in the events of the day and just as faithful in his sovereign care. So that's a great testimony. That's the way we need to tell the stories. That's the way we need to end the stories that uh, when he works something so amazing as he did for Barbara Hughes down there in Wheaton, uh, he does not do that for all. He has other purposes for why some live 12 hours and some live two years and some live 35 years and others live a long, long, long time. Let's pray. Lord, as we talk again now and look at your word about your providence, I know that your purpose for us tonight is to, is to take us another step towards maturity and firmness and pervasiveness and unshakability of faith in future grace. That's what you want to do tonight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we're going to look at the word tonight that our faith might be strengthened so that in good times and hard times, in living times and dying times, we might be unshakable in our faith. So build your people's faith tonight. And Lord, I want to pray for the kids across the commons there. God, move in that room. Save the lost. Strengthen the believers. Build your kingdom there among teenagers. Bless them, Lord. And for the little kids in their clubs, 
upstairs and elsewhere. All through these buildings, Lord, may the word of God bear fruit in deep faith. And then through faith, Lord, release us into all the manifold acts of obedience that will get glory for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a little review here. We get people who've missed sessions, and some of you are new to the session. And uh, I won't restate everything, but I will restate some things here. We're talking about the providence of God. Let's, let's read our definition again from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's see how get this over here. What is providence? It is the Almighty and everywhere, the Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand. <laughs> Interesting. I just did a little word search on my computer Bible program at home because I was reading Ezekiel 1 to 3 this morning and and twice in the first three chapters Ezekiel says the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. I said the hand of the Lord was upon me. And that image of, of God's hand being on you is used here in this definition for some reason. As by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Why is that helpful to study? Question 28 in the Heidelberg Catechism. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, which is the rest of your life, by the way, and the only part you have any concern in whatsoever. The rest is gone forever. Not even God can change it. And for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. I've called this lesson tonight Animals, Sickness, and Satan. Last time we talked about inanimate objects like weather and God's providence over weather. Um, I'll pass over this one, I think, just to save time. I had a text on the sustaining providence of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Let's just review briefly the uh, the weather or the, the inanimate things. Like Psalm 104, God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. So if you're a biologist, don't, don't think that this negates your study and all of the causality that you can perceive in photosynthesis and so on doesn't negate that. It lifts it up so that you wonder at an appropriate level. You worship as you study the processes that God is using to do what the Bible says he does. The lot 
is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. I illustrated that with dice throwing. Every time you throw dice, God decides what comes up. That's pretty thoroughgoing providence. So you're tempted to pray every time you play a game. And maybe you should. Was that even worse than Las Vegas? Uh, God is even controlling evil places. Absolutely. He makes people rich and poor according to his purposes. This was a text we looked at last time that I wanted to recite again because of all the texts in the New Testament about the providence of God over our lives. This is one of the most powerful. Come you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. In other words, just ordinary planning for your day. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So if if you get home tonight... Safe and sound, it's because the Lord willed it. And if you get killed on the way home tonight, it's because the Lord willed it. Now, getting a little complex here. Been mulling your question, Steve. Here's here's what Steve said last time. Steve Nelson. We read this text. Oops. This is not it. Where is it? I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to yours in a minute. This is a word on chance. What what does it mean when the Bible refers to chance? Which it does twice, I believe. And these are the two places. By chance, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. By chance, a um, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And the other usage of the word chance is... Ecclesiastes 9.11 I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Um, here's what Michael Eaton in his commentary on Ecclesiastes said, says about chance. He says, On the lips of an Israelite, chance means what, what is unexpected, not what is random. The word in Ecclesiastes 9.11 is used only one other time in 1 Kings 5.4 where it means event. This isn't translated chance. That's why I didn't include it. So the word chance occurs in the New Testament here. By chance, a certain priest was going down. And here, chance and time overtake them all. Meaning, from a human standpoint, things look very uh, unexpected. But there's no, this is no, these two verses are not theological statements about God's being out of control and the world being run by 
random movements of molecules. I suppose the word faith could also be uh, included in that random faith Fate. Fate, right, yes. Fate, we talked about fate in one of our lessons uh, being that which is not moved by a purposeful hand. Um, animals, what I'm, moving, what I'm doing here, in case you're wondering, what, what's, what's the sense of this order, of this flow, is, is move, take, gather all the texts about providence that I could think of and move from the inanimate to, to the most uh, animate and to the most moral, namely our wills. That's what we're getting toward. I'm, I'm trying to save that as we establish the providence of God at the inanimate level, now at the, at the animate level, and in circumstances, and then we're going to move to nations, national things, big movements in history, and pretty soon we're going to get right down on the human will, which is what creates the most theological problems for us. If God is, has complete control and sovereignty over the human will, then it raises questions that are different than animals. But let's make sure we understand Animals, and you'll see why this in the Bible is important because, um, well, you'll see. Psalm 104, 25 to 29. There's the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which thou hast formed a sport in it. That's an amazing statement. You, you, you made this animal, whatever it is, big squid or something, to uh, sport in it. He's just out there. Nobody ever sees him. Nobody. Just God. And he makes him just, just churn around in the water. And God looks down and says, that's big. I like it. Look how big it is. Look how strong it is. It's strong. And nobody is watching except maybe the devil and some angels. They all wait for thee, all these animals, all these swarms of things in the sea, they wait for thee to give them their food in due season. That's amazing. Thou dost give to them, they gather it up. Thou dost open thy hand, they are satisfied with good. Thou dost hide thy face, they are dismayed. Thou dost take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. So there is an intimacy of involvement with the world that we mechanized scientific 20th century people don't generally think about. We just think everything is by by scientific molecular causalities. Just kind of, everything just works. And God wound it up that way, or maybe God didn't, and it works. Whereas the writers of the Bible uh, saw God much more intertwined with his creation. He gives them food. He opens his hand. He satisfies them. He hides his face, and they're dismayed. He takes away their spirit, and they expire and go back to the dust. So he's out there working with all the zillions of bacteria in the world and all the fish in the sea and birds in the air. Job 38, 
Can you hunt the prey for the lion? He's, he's challenging Job to, come on now, if, you, if you're in a position to criticize me like you've been doing for some of your chapters, let me ask you a few questions about whether you can do what I can do. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment? when its young cry to God and wonder without, about without food. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment? Jesus is going to pick that up. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow... Neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So right here, this little connection here, should alert us to why the Bible even bothers to talk about animals. Jesus expects, and I think Job expected when he wrote his book, and the psalmists expect that if you look out in nature and have the eyes of the Bible and see God at work there, it's going to have an effect on your relation, <laughs> your relationship with God. Jesus says it should. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. So every time you see a bird you know, pulling up a worm or going out picking off mosquitoes through the air, I say, well, that... That is an amazing thing that God is doing there. God is working there. And then you're to contemplate your covenant relationship with the Lord and say, if he does that for birds who are not created in the image of God and who uh, have no relationship to him, will not live forever as a means to give him glory, then how much more will he care about me? Matthew 10 are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Same, same kind of connection here. Notice this now. Your father feeds the birds, so take heart. You're more valuable than birds. And here, he, he so rules. Now think of this. Picture some totally unpenetrated and uninhabited jungle of Africa or Papua New Guinea. And it's filled with birds, zillions of birds. And they die. And when they die, they go clunk. But only by God. Only by God. So every bird in Ecuador, every bird in Papua New Guinea, every bird in, in Africa falls dead by the will of God. God is that intimately involved with his creation. So if you, you know, some people try to solve the tragedies of life by saying, well, God just sort of generally, generally oversees things, but he's not, he's not involved in the specifics 
I think Jesus spoke like this to convince us that he is involved in the specifics. Not one hair turns white or black apart from your father's will. Your hairs are all numbered. So he meant, see, here's the logic now. He wants all of you in this room now to think like this. If you're persuaded by Jesus' words here that God is so intimately involved in his creation that no bird falls to the ground apart from your father and the very hairs of your head are all numbered, what's the point of that? Well, nobody in the world knows the number of the hairs in your head. doesn't matter if it's few, ten, or many. You, you have no idea how many hairs are on your head. Nobody has ever counted the hairs on a human head, I don't think. That would be so hard to do. God, it's a piece of cake for him, and he knows exactly. And the whole point is intimate involvement with you, intimate knowledge of you. And so nothing's going to happen to you apart from your father. Nothing is going to happen to you apart from your father. You, you can't say, yeah, but he doesn't know me or he's far from me because he uses this, the very hairs of you. He has gotten close enough to go like this. One, two, three. He's close. He's close. He's one, two, like that. And so this, this whole animals thing, I don't have any more on animals, is, is not just kind of curious and interesting. The Bible means for us to know our world and to see it in relation to God in such a way that it reflects right back on the intimacy of his relationship to us and the power that he exerts there. He exerts all the more to us. And we should take heart. Now, I want to, I want to raise uh, the issue of what you might call um, causal, the links in the causal chain. Satan as a link in the causal chain of providence in inanimate and animate things. Now, I'm where I was with Steve Nelson. Um, this verse, Matthew 8, 26, we read last time, a couple of weeks ago, which said, uh, Jesus gets into the, Jesus gets wake, waked up in the boat that's about to be sunk by the storm. And Jesus said to them, why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now, Steve came up to me after the session two weeks ago, and he said, isn't that word rebuked? What does that word rebuke signify? If, if God is so totally in control of all these inanimate things, why would God's son rebuke God's instrument? Sharp question. Ooh, I like questions like that. That's the way to read the Bible. So it raised the question about other wills besides God's in nature. Namely, maybe, Satan. Has he got anything to do with the wind? And we looked at numerous texts that says God rules the wind. God opens his storehouses and sends the wind. But rebuked sounds like the wind was being unruly. Not just wisely distributed by a heavenly father, but 
unruly, as though it were not simply the instrument of God, but of an independent power that the Son of God needed to restrain. So that's a question here. So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. Trying to understand now between God in his absolute providential rule over the world and the effects here, is there something in between that makes things a little more complex than what we've said? Only Satan. So let's make a go at it and see what we find. Yes, Prince of the Power of the Air. He seems to have his uh, his sphere roving around on the earth in the atmosphere. Right, that's in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 or 3. Let's first talk about sickness, because sickness is uh, is where we, that's what we care most about when it comes to inanimate stuff. Sickness and, and, and getting hit by cars and things like that. So let's, there are several biblical texts that show Satan involved in sickness. And I've put them here. We'll, we'll read a couple of them. This is Luke thirteen eleven to 16. Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. That's a demon. And she was bent double. So the effect on the the material part of her body, her life, her body, was that it made her bend over. Whatever, Whatever muscular bone things you could see, Jesus said, the devil did it. She was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. He wasn't possessed. He wasn't possessed. It was a sickness. Caused by a demon. So a demon is involved in the molecular something or other. You know? I don't know how, but involved there and he laid his hands upon her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God and the synagogue official indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath tisk tisk <laughs> began saying to the multitude in response there are six days in which Work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Boy, these people, these poor benighted Pharisees were really, really blind. We, we were reading this morning John 11. No, we finished it yesterday. Four days, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is standing there. There's a crowd all around. He says, Father, for your sake, I ask you to do this. Lazarus, come forth. And he walks out of the tomb. And these people run off and they they say, they might believe on him and the Romans would come and kill us. We've got to find a way to put him away. 
Is that the craziest response you ever heard to somebody raising the dead? Four days dead, come forth. Why aren't they on their faces worshiping? They, they, they got such a vested interest in doing it a different way that they can't see. They just can't see. It's scary. The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you... Uh, on the Sabbath, untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. We got caused by spirit, Satan has bound. For 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Okay, there's a lot of lessons in that story. But the one lesson I'm focusing on is Satan, by one of his spirits or directly, is causing this uh, sickness. So you got to ask now, if God controls every bird that falls in Africa and Papua New Guinea, and if, if God rules over all inanimate things and animate things, where is he? How does he relate to Satan here? Is God doing it? Or is is, uh, Satan doing it? Before I go on and and read another verse, I think I should read, because I I really should have uh, established God's involvement in our bodies more more than I have, but let me read to you Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So you can hear the, you got to deal with both truths, not just one. You can't go off on either direction overstating your case. Moses is really um, nervous about being God's spokesman and says, "I, I can't do it. I've never been able to talk. Um, chapter 4 verse Moses says to the Lord verse 10 oh my Lord I'm not, I'm not eloquent either hence heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant but I am slow of speech and tongue then the Lord said to him who made man's mouth who made him dumb or deaf, or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. And you could add a long list of diseases to that, like bent over for 18 years. So I, I do not assume when I read the spirit and the devil did this, I do not assume that God isn't there. And somehow involved. So that's our question is, how do they relate? What, is, how, what does God do? How does Satan do it? And how then should we think about our own maladies? And how should we pray? And so on. So here's another, another text. You know, this is Peter preaching at uh, Cornelius' place. You know of, of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. 
for God was with him. Now, I don't know if you can take that text to mean every sickness is by the devil. But it's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So here you got the devil involved in a lot of sickness. And Jesus goes after it and he heals those who are oppressed by the devil. Now, here's a text that um, relates Satan to sickness, I believe, and, and allows us to begin to get at the dynamic of how God might be involved. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. I should say 7 to 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul says, he's, he's just said that he'd been caught up into the heavens and seen things he can't even speak. So marvelous. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me, there was given me to keep me from exalting myself, a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, let's just stop there a minute. Does Satan want Paul to be proud or not? I think so. Satan doesn't want to advance humility. And protect Paul from the sin of pride. Who does? God does. So, who sent Satan? The messenger of Satan. Who's. What I'm going to. What I'm going to suggest is that Satan is a fool. And I hope he's listening right now. Because I, I, I like to call him names. He's a fool. He shoots himself in the foot over and over again. One of the clearest examples of his insanity is causing Judas to betray Jesus. It says in Luke, and Satan entered into him. You know why that's insane is because at the beginning of Jesus' life in the wilderness, what was Satan doing everything in his power to divert Jesus from? The Calvary Road. Come on, you can have the whole world. You can skirt the cross. You can have the whole world. Just bow down and worship me. Come on, show your power. Jump off the temple. Come on, show your power. Turn rock to bread. Come on, don't suffer. So that's smart. That's smart. Because the cross, the cross was the end of Satan's power. And he, he, got, he could, he's sometimes lucid and then everything goes haywire in his sin-sick brain. And near the end, he was so cornered that he, he panicked and he shot himself in the foot. And he said, okay, 
if he's on his way to the cross, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really rub it in. I said, wow. That's just, I mean, the sufferings that Jesus went through, every one of the sufferings that Jesus went through was lifting sin off of us. And sin's the only thing Satan's got to kill us with. It's the only weapon he's got. Satan cannot hurt you without sin. If you solve your sin problem, you solve your Satan problem. He can show you green things in the middle of the night and terrify you, but he can't hurt you. He can't, he can't hurt you eternally except with sin. If he can accuse you legitimately with sin, he can have you forever. If Christ saves you from your sin through the cross, he can never have you. Never, never, ever have you again. So he shot himself right in the foot in putting Judas onto Jesus. Well, I think that happens all the time. Just all the time. So I pray for when I see evil happen in the world, physical evil and moral evil, I just start praying that it would just backfire all over the place in Satan's designs. Just just totally mess up in his design and God's God's handling of Satan would move in a, in a wonderful way. So here you got a messenger of Satan that's being used to sanctify Paul. I just love this. Satan the great sanctifier. How he must rage when God forces him into those roles. He forced him into the role of saving the human race as he brought all the evil against Jesus. And then from time to time, he's forcing him into the sanctifying role. Because, let me just, here's another text that comes to my mind. Hebrews 12 is all about the discipline of the father to his children, right? And he says, if you've had earthly fathers and they've disciplined you according to their good pleasure and you have a heavenly father who disciplines you for your good. You know what the discipline is in context? It's persecution. You think Satan's not involved in persecution? I think Satan's involved in persecution. So you got Satan... Well, it says in Revelation 2, Satan will throw you in jail for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Satan throws people in jail. Well, now, if those people in jail read Hebrews 12, where it says, if, if, you, do, if you, sh- you have not yet resisted under the shedding of blood, you are being treated like sons because God disciplines every son whom he receives. Okay, is it Satan throwing me in jail or is it God disciplining me for my holiness? And God would say, yes. Just like here. So Satan is the lackey. He's the lackey of God. He can't do anything without God's leash being lengthened. And God can shorten it anytime he pleases. So let's keep reading just to to see the whole picture here. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it would depart from me. So I would say, anytime you get sick or anytime you meet adversity, it's okay to ask God to help you and remove it. Okay? Don't, don't conclude from my view, and I hope you share the view, of God's massive providence over your life. I say, well, que sera, sera. God made me sick. I'm sick. Don't, don't do that. If you're sick, yes, but it may be as in 
John 9, unto the glory of God that you get well. Or it may be that it's under the glory of God that you would be faithful unto death. But you're, you're, you're a child. You go to your father, you ask him what you want. That's what he wants you to do. I want to get well. So you pray, get well. Well, God said no to Paul here. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So this, this thorn in the flesh was producing an experience of weakness for Paul. I don't know what it was. It's good that we don't know what it was, because then we'd say, well, that's just, that's just our, only our, it only applies to arthritis, you know. It doesn't apply to hernias or something like that. The doctor told me I have a hernia today. I went to the doctor and I've got a hernia right here. So maybe I'll have to take a week out and get this thing fixed in February. So it, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults. Those come from Satan. When, when, when mean-spirited people give way to insults, Satan's at work there. And distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The upshot of this text is so amazing. Somehow or other, God uses Satan as an intermediary cause in some of the painful work that he ordains for our good. So, Steve, I don't know that that's what was happening with this wind that was about to... Uh, sink the ship, but at least this would be a a conception that would make sense. As the disciples were heading out across the Sea of Galilee, they had just experienced, hmm, I think that was right after the feeding of the 5,000, they, they had just experienced some remarkable work of God. They were probably filled with expectation and excitement, and Satan says, I'm going to get those guys. I'm going to wreck their faith. So he's and God let him have the wind. Okay, take the wind. Now we're going to see this again in Job in just a minute. God let him have the wind. So Satan, maybe Satan goes to God and says, they just trust you because they saw um, 5,000 people filled. But if they get into a storm, they won't trust you. God says, go ahead. Try. That, that may be the way it worked. does seem to say that Jesus sees some unruliness in this wind here. I, that may be reading too much into the word, but it's real helpful to ask those kinds of questions because it sets you on to many texts that shed light. You want to ask any questions about this text or make a comment about it before I look at Job? Let me repeat the question so you can hear it if you didn't hear Wendy. Does the contentedness here, should it only come after we have heard from the Lord a particular my grace is sufficient for you regarding something you've been asking him for? 
Um, no would be my answer. Um, but I think the ground and the experience of the contentment will be different, probably. That is, if you get uh, some clear indication from the Lord, suppose you get cancer, and the whole church teams up to pray for healing, and it gets worse. And one night, the Lord just gives you the sweetest assurance that it's time to die takes away all your fear and you just tell people let's just shift our praying over to peace and for the family and at that moment there's going to be a contentment that's rooted in that sweet assurance that the Lord gave before that there should have been another kind of contentment and it would be rooted simply in biblical truth that all things work together for good and uh, whether I live or whether I die, I want my body to glorify the Lord. So I, I don't think he means to imply here that until he got this word, these three petitions, deliver me, were, were spoken in a kind of, I can't have peace unless you take this away. I don't think so. Good, good question, though. Go ahead. Greg. You know, that's a really good question because he is called the God of this age. Satan is the God of this age, which means he has an incredible sway still, even though his, his stinger, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the, the power of sin is the law. Uh, how does it say? The, the, the sting of death has been removed. Uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan um, can kill, but he can't kill ultimately, and so the stinger has been removed. So he, he has been defanged in a remarkable way. However, he, his leash is really long. My hesitation in saying that that's the main way we should conceive of the world is it's Satan's domain and God intrudes here and there is that those texts that I read about not a bird falls without your heavenly father and many others imply a lot more closeness of God's involvement than that. So I think the texts about Satan's remarkable sway that he holds in the world is simply meant to say that he has a lot of power but God is right here all the time in his face only allowing what he wills so that God is very close to us he's not distant saying well Satan's got you but I'll come penetrate in the nick of time here and there I don't conceive of it that way Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me make disciples and I will be with you to the end of the age. So all authority in heaven and on earth, that's all angelic and all demonic authority is Christ's. And he's with us to the end of the age. Did you have a other text in mind or another idea in mind? I think 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's look at Job. This is last, the last text, but we're going to look at a lot of it because Job is probably the closest thing we have in the Bible to an account of the behind-the-scenes dealings between God and Satan. The closest thing we've got, I think. And so we're going to look at it in the last uh, uh, 15 minutes, uh, 10, 10, 10 minutes or whatever. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord, said, From roaming about the earth, walking around on it. Prince of the power of the air, and he's, like you said, he's the God of this world. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house? And all that he has on every side, in other words, he's prospering. Never, and gets sick. His kids are okay. He's got a lot of locks. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But God, you put forth your hand now. You, you put forth your hand now. And touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, He is in your power. Only leash. Do not put forth your hand on him. So you can touch his kids and his animals, but not him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now let's keep in mind these two things. Satan says, You do it. And God says, You do it. Now, who's going to do it? That's the question. And how should we talk about it when it gets done, when the tragedies come? And there is a a lot of tragedy coming here. Now, it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, I almost left this this verse out and picked out the ones where only inanimate forces were in play, because this raises questions I'm going to deal with later, like the Sabaeans made some choices. The Sabaeans made choices to do this. So the will of a human being was being influenced by God or Satan or both. That's the issue that rises under the providence of God in the human will. Somebody moved the Sabaeans to do this. Did they have free will or didn't they? But um, two of the instances involve inanimate power. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants and consumed them. 
and I alone have escaped. What's that? That's probably lightning or some fire as a result of lightning. So there's no human will involved in that. Somebody had a lightning bolt that killed the whole flock. Next, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So there we have the Chaldeans again, like the Sabaeans here. Somebody have influenced their wills to do that. And while he was still speaking, here comes the worst of all. Another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind no will here no human will involved here a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died all your children are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you now here comes the interpretation of this this providence Job arose and tore his robe so that's okay that's okay. Tear your robe. Tear your robe. And shaved his head. And he fell on the ground. And he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the writer, knowing how we would gasp at that interpretation, adds, Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God. Literally, it's did not sin with his lips. He didn't this is not a sin to say this. This is not a sin. This is not blaming. This is simply humbling yourself under the providence of God. Um, but God said, God said, Satan, put forth your hand on him. So if that's what happened, and Job did not sin and lie when he said this, then my conclusion is the Lord was in charge of Satan. The Lord controls Satan. Satan blew the wind and knocked, knocked the house down and killed the kids, and God could have stopped him, could have pulled the leash in. And so Job, he could have said, Satan, I hate you, and I hate your murderous ways with my kids. And that would have been a true statement and a legitimate emotion. But Job just jumped over that step in the grieving process, and he, he said, God rules Satan, and I simply bow and acknowledge God. Now, you see anything here that I'm missing, or you want to um, make a comment about? Let's look. We just, we'll finish it off, and then you can ask questions if we have any time left. About eight minutes to go. Here's the next chapter. This is the whole thing. That's my last transparency this morning. I mean, this tonight. Well, Satan's not done with him because he hasn't touched him yet. He hasn't touched his body. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him. Hmm. Hmm. So was Satan the cause even immediately to ruin him without cause, without cause, but not without purpose, which you see when you get to the end of the book. And you see in the book of James when he sums it all up in chapter 5. The story of Job. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. Put forth thy hand. Same thing. And he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said, behold, he is in your power. Only leash, spare his life. You can't have his life. So he loosens the leash this much. But now we get a different statement of what the causality was. Watch this. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with boils. That's a pretty straightforward statement. Satan smote him with boils. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. In my Job poems, I rescue her. (laughs) I'm real hopeful about such pain. Words for the wind. Words for the wind. Shall we indeed... Here's, now here's Job's unbelievable interpretation. Shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God, from God, and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So here is Satan doing it. And here is Job saying, God brought the adversity. And here's the man who put this book together saying, that is not a sin. Talk like that. That's worship. So in answer to Steve's question, Um, Satan is alive and well in the world. He has a lot of leash given to him. He does much damage, but he does nothing outside the control of our Father in heaven. And for the children of God, every evil that he permits Satan to do on us Satan designs it for destruction and God designs it for holiness.
according to Hebrews 12 and, and other texts. All your pain, you may legitimately fight and you may legitimately rebuke up to a point. But you should never do it with the spirit that, God, you're not there. God, you don't care. God, you're out of control. And that will be very hard at times. That will be really hard at times because the pain will absolutely be excruciating. I mean, when I think of the torture that has happened in the world to Christians, I tell you, I, I hope, I make no presumption that my faith as it stands now would be sufficient for those moments. To watch my child tortured by a Gestapo would put my faith in the providence of God to an ultimate test. We got uh, two minutes. Question? Go ahead, John. You get the sense in observing Satan that he doesn't realize that he's on a leash or that he doesn't know what his ultimate destiny is. Does he know his future or what the future is? That's a good question. I think he does. The reason I think he does which just adds to his, his insanity, is that when Jesus went to cast out the demons in, in Gadara, the Gadarene demoniac, and they saw him coming, and they were terrified that the Son of God was about to come, they said, why are you here to torment us before the time? What does that mean? I, I think it means... We know our days are numbered. And we are just so thoroughly evil that we are here to do as much damnable destruction as we can. And you, you're not supposed to cast us into the fiery lake until the judgment. That, and so he cast them into the pigs. And they went down. So that little phrase makes me think, why are you here to torment us before the time that the whole demonic world is insanely aware of its, of its end and never thinks of repenting? That's how evil they are. The, the fallen angels are so far gone that they know hell is coming it's been prepared for them before the foundation of the world, Matthew 25, prepared for the devil and his angels, and they don't even think about repenting, as many humans don't do. Well, let's pray. Lord, these have been big and weighty things to contemplate and I want to pray right now that we would have on our arms the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit by which we can quench every fiery dart of the devil as we go home tonight because having been made fun of here like this and having been exposed in his limits and weakness and folly like this he may well be very angry at me and at us. 
And I just pray that we would rest in your wonderful sovereignty and we would take the shield of faith and we would believe in the glorious promises of God that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and that we can move through our days with a sense of triumph and that even when you loose his leash enough to hurt us, that will turn for our holiness and for your glory, which we want more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen.